Hello everyone, this is Mladen Jovanović and uh, I'm here with Israel Halperin from Israel and uh, what we're going to try to do is to create a series of video podcasts or videocasts um, on various topics and uh, and we, we're probably going to invite a few um, uh, people to to join the conversation over, over time but uh, as an introduction, <clears throat> we plan discussing things um, from, I would say, an uh, uncertainty perspective, uh, maybe being more uh, uh, critical, I would say, um, making critiques of certain ideas and providing some of our experiences and ideas on, on some stuff. Uh, so again, it's going to be more like a free flow, free flow chat and we're going to listen to the uh, feedback from you uh, guys or girls uh, listening. Um, you know, regarding the, the topics you would love us to discuss and, and so forth. So uh, let's get this project started. I'm, I'm very happy to have Israel here. And the, the idea started uh, because every time we, we spoke on Skype, we, we wished we recorded the, the discussion. So uh, we're going to try to do that now. So uh, thanks for, thanks for um, doing this, Israel. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll move to you and for the introduction yeah so just to reframe what you said from my perspective we have been talking for the past i don't know how many years i don't know once every few weeks and we have this usually very long chats up to two hours and usually we get very excited and we come to interesting conclusions and then at the end of it we're like oh man we should have recorded this this could have possibly be of interest to some people and we never do that and then recently, when was it? I think uh, two weeks ago or something, you contacted me and you wanted me to write something. And then I was like, well, man, let's just make this something that we do on a regular basis, record it. And maybe some people will find something of interest to them that they can apply. And I think our perspectives are similar in many ways. We both uh, place a lot of emphasis on uncertainty and the way we coach and the way we approach our lives. And I think... Uh, the industry, the exercise and movement industry could benefit from a bit of uh, uncertainty involved in their uh, thinking processes. So I think this is what we should aim to do. And like we said, let's uh, let's get this one going and uh, receive some feedback from the audience and uh, and work our way through this. Hopefully people can enjoy it. So <clears throat> embrace the chaos. <laughs> embrace the chaos. So uh, uh, I already made a, a podcast with you, uh, I think a year or two. Uh, so for anyone who is not familiar with Israel, uh, in my mind, he's uh, a special type of breed. Um, he's a, he was a Muay Thai competitor, he's a Muay Thai coach, and he's also a, a PhD researcher. So we have all these three into uh, one, one good-looking guy. Uh, so um, it's, it's, it's really, it's really um, a great thing to have someone like like. Israel with, with his all his experience and, and critical thinking skills. So um, for for those of you who didn't listen to a podcast with Israel, uh, can you just quickly introduce yourself? Sure. So I'll work my way from the start. Um, from most of my life up until my mid-20s, I was a competitive athlete. I competed in a number of uh, combat sports, uh, full contact karate, uh, MMA, modified MMA, and mainly um, kickboxing, boxing, and Muay Thai. This is uh, what I enjoy the most. 
Um, I went through some severe injuries. I had uh, two shoulder dislocations. I had to get a shoulder reconstruction. And after too many injuries and too many shots to the head, I decided that I had enough. I traveled the world too. I've been, I spent two years in the States competing and training a year in Thailand. I spent a lot of time in Europe. So I did experience a lot of different perspectives and approaches, which really influenced uh, who I am today, both as a coach and as a scientist. After I quit fighting, I naturally gravitated into coaching, which I still do to this day. Uh, I'm both a SNC coach, if you want to call it that, and also a kickboxing, Muay Thai coach. And um, yeah, so as I coached, I started my uh, academic career. I completed my uh, bachelor's in physical education in Israel. And I sure do not want to be a physical education teacher, especially not in Israel. So I uh, moved to Canada and I completed my master's of science over there with uh, Professor David Bain. It was, uh, was a big name in terms of uh, stretching, muscle fatigue and just performance. And I worked with him there for two years. And then there was a really unique opportunity to uh, pursue a PhD in the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, they, they had a combat, actually they still have a combat center over there and they wanted to really uh, place some emphasis on getting some medals with the combat sports. So there's a PhD opening to focus on combat sports and uh, I think that because I had a pretty strong master's with a fair few publications and of course due to my uh, combat sports background I was able to, uh, to, to get the opportunity and I moved to Australia. I spent there three years which was a very interesting experience. I got a lot of experience doing uh, applied research and working with a lot of athletes from all over the world. I then moved back to uh, Canada uh, to do a postdoc. I spent, uh, yeah, which up until this point, um, the contract is gonna be over soon and now I'm back to Israel speaking with you. That's, that's all in a nutshell. So it's a pretty, pretty good journey um, all around and um, yeah, um, I think I the first time I heard about you was on on a on a one interview uh and then I pursued to to contact you with with email or Facebook can can actually like the, the thing is like don't even remember how I got in contact with a lot of people like social media and stuff and I was I'm just I'm back from uh visiting uh, AC uh Roma uh visiting Darcy Norman in Rome, in Italy, and I was lucky enough to watch the uh, game against Barcelona, where Roma beat Barcelona three three zero and um, and eliminate them. So that's a legendary game to watch, and I was more than happy to actually witness it alive. Um, so, and the thing is, I was talking to Darcy, and I was like, "How how actually did we get in contact?" And it's like I don't even know anymore. So. Um, you see, this should be my excuse because I got punched in the head so many times. Uh, yeah, I got choked so many times, so that's <laughs> probably lack of oxygen rather than trauma. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, um, the first time uh, we, we spoke was when I was in, in Qatar, if I remember correctly, maybe slightly yeah. before. And when I was going to Thailand, I, I did pick your brain on, you know, certain things regarding the Muay Thai training camp and... I was happy to to have you to kind of uh, reinforce or uh, say trying to find the right word um, 
make me go actually myself to to live in Thailand for a, a month and train Muay Thai. That was <clears throat> really interesting experience, which I hope to repeat. Mm. So uh, for for today episode, we didn't have anything planned like up front and we wanted to kind of free flow. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the points that I'd like to make now that we're starting out is what we're going to be emphasizing. Okay, go ahead. Both of us actually come from a, from a similar perspective, as I already said, and that's something that I hope will be a part of every show or podcast, however you want to call it, that we're going to have. It's just the degrees of uncertainty involved in everything that we do in the coaching processes. And that really, if, if you, you've had me, if you ask me what I think underlines our philosophies, is just how we approach uncertainty and how much we embrace it and how much both of us think that it's lacking in a lot of what we see around us uh, for various reasons, which are also worthy of discussion. But I know that I've learned a lot from you in your approach about embracing uncertainty, and that's something I'm always trying to do even more and more. Uh, so when I deal a problem, and a problem may be a client I'm working with or a scientific project that I'm about to pursue, I usually try to target it, to attack it from a point of, well, I don't know, let's see what happens with let, not, not so much confidence, you know? Uh, and that's what I hope will, uh, will be a big part of the show. What, what do you think? Um, I, I'm pretty certain, <laughs> which is a good uh, choice of words. Uh-huh. Um, I'm pretty certain that, that un- like uncertainty perspective and dealing with uh, not enough of information in making decisions in, in training practices is, is the topic of this series of, of uh, shows. And uh, uh, let, let's start with a uh, you know, very, very simple example that I actually um, seen, seen uh, got actually from you when, when I visited you in, in uh, Canberra. Uh, so, and we, to, for the listeners, I, I visited the Israel and I actually participated in one of his Muay Thai sessions. Um, there were a few fighters involved and few recreational athletes, right? And yeah. myself. So the, the session started with a, with a warm up and then a few technical drills, uh, with, with a partner. Um, and then kind of like a game like, uh, flow sparring with a partner with a certain emphasis on, on certain element that been drilling, drilled before. Um, finishing with, um, a, a sparring for uh, competitors. And then at the end, just finishing with the, uh, with a very specific conditioning. For example, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, uh, a kicking drills on the bags. And, um, and afterwards I, you know, try to cover blood from my blisters. Um, I spoke with Israel regarding the, you know, why did he did this type of a mixed session where everything's being kind of covered in a, in a single session, uh, rather than having like a, a thematic session, for example, having a, a sparring session or having a, a conditioning session or technique drilling session and so forth. And I would say that uh, Israel response was kind of really, uh, along the lines of my own, call it a agile periodization schema where, where he tried to describe how he, uh, find that strategy, the, the most, 
I would say robust when dealing with the uh, uncertain attendance of the athletes. So can you can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah, of course. So when I travel the world as an athlete, training in different gyms, and as a coach, uh, I always observed what people are doing, and I went through many sessions or many training periods in which uh, the sessions were structured in a way that, let's say, Monday was dedicated for whatever skill it may be, conditioning, I don't know, drilling, sparring. So days were dedicated to developing or working on certain skills or physical attributes. But my problem with that over time is that I notice a few things. First, the athletes are humans, and unless they're doing that for, for a living, and even still, even those who do it for a living, sometimes, you know, they're sick, or they don't feel well, or they got a family member crisis, or something along these lines. And naturally, they'll miss a few sessions. And then what would happen if one of my athletes would miss a session during a, a given day that is dedicated to developing a certain skill, then that would mean that he lost a whole, I don't know, two hours worth of, of skill development. And then he would just just stay behind. So my strategy was let's just try to have everything in a single session that in the case that someone misses a session, it's not so bad for them. It, it doesn't put them behind compared to the others. They're just going to miss a little bit of everything. So it's a lot easier to catch up. So that's one angle. And the other is also from a motor learning and from a skill acquisition perspective, when you compare, say, block versus uh, random, maybe these are two variables that I'm not going to define right now, but perhaps we'll dedicate one of our shows uh, just talking about that because I think it's very important, is that when you just work on one skill for a whole session, then the learning, the acquisition of that skill is not going to be as effective and as robust compared to if we work on a few skills and going back and forth from one thing to the other. Uh, and also then there's probably enjoyment as well. When we work a little bit on everything, there's always, you keep the athletes fresh. What's next? There's also something a bit different. Now we're going to do conditioning. Now we're going to do skills. Now we're going to do sparring. So these, this is my rationale. I haven't been able to, I mean, I try to question my own, um, my own actions. And I, I think I still believe in this strategy. The only thing, I mean, maybe sparring is something that you probably do need a, a separate day, especially if you're going to go very hard for a few reasons that one, you can't spar 100% all the time. So that's not something you can do every day. And the second reason is I, I want to have some anticipation, some stress involved, so it will mimic what will actually happen in the fight. So if Sunday afternoons is the day that we do heavy sparring, then everybody comes prepares for that. They wake up in the morning, they're a bit stressed. They know there's actually something to that they're going to have to to prepare for psychologically. So I think having that peppered in every now and then is worthwhile. But I don't know if we want to just completely focus on combat sports. So th this is basically my rationale. So how does uh, <clears throat> these things fit together from a physiological standpoint, where we where we kind of believe that we want to avoid this interference effect between certain training drills so for example hitting multiple qualities and we've been we've been kind of told from uh you know periodization research that we need to kind of separate uh development of certain qualities as much as possible if they are kind of um competing for the same stimuli in the organism 
Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's a good point. And again, I'm open to change my mind in case I see some robust evidence. But my view is that a lot of the, this type of thinking is very reductionist. And perhaps it's appropriate for sports that are, that are closed skills, that, are, that really depend on maximizing one physical quality to the maximum. Whereas with combat sports, and I should also emphasize that I'm talking mainly from a decision-making sports perspective, and especially combat sports, I'm not quite sure, and my research that, that I've done does not also support this, that there is one physical attribute that needs to be maximized to the fullest to, to differentiate yourself from, from the opponents, especially within the same kind of level. I haven't noticed that. I've done so many physical tests on so many different athletes from around the world. Let's not talk about boxing, for, for instance, which is a, a sport that I worked with closely uh, during my time in Australia and also uh, privately as well, not just in Australia. And I have yet to, to observe at least, now I'm talking anecdotally, right? So this is also, I may be biased, but I have yet to observe a quality, a physical quality, so to speak, a pure physical quality, maximal strength, power, whatever it is, that really differentiates. I haven't seen that. What I've seen is just a, a mixture, a chaotic mixture of all these qualities. Some athletes that are very good are actually not that strong or not that fast. So I haven't seen a pattern. So that makes me believe that I don't – and then when you think about what actually happens in the ring, you need all the qualities interacting at the same time. So I do believe in the principle of specificity. I really try to mimic that as much as I can while, of course, trying to target and emphasize a certain quality, perhaps more so than the others, but it's not going to receive 100% of my attention or time in a given session. Unless, of course, there's something that's going to influence my thinking and, and believe that there's, there's a reason to do that. But to be fair, I have yet encountered such a case. So <clears throat> a few, few questions to expand on this topic is that uh, how, how, how do you decide which qualities are important? Uh, on a group level, like organizational level, uh, and how do you decide what's important to develop for a, a given fighter uh, in a given time frame? So, and like that's like a, I would say a crossover, a snapshot at a given instant in time. But how do you kind of evolve that continuously in a, like a middle and long term? Like, do you do you change the emphasis, or and also do you believe that? To really push a certain quality, whatever the quality is, we can we can talk about that. To really push the certain quality, that quality needs to have bigger uh, saturation or a bigger volume, kind of to to kind of move yeah. forward rather than to having this mixed stuff. Yeah, yeah, man, you're asking me great questions, and maybe this boils down to the underlying theme of what we're going to do here is that I'll I'll bluntly say that I just don't know. I am shooting in the dark here. You're asking me really good questions, and I don't, I don't really think that we have any solid amount of evidence that at least going to direct me one way or the other. So what I do is just I let it unfold, and I see what happens because, like you said, and you've even been to one of my sessions, so I'll have someone who is a world champion in the same class with someone who's recreational and training three or four times a week. They have completely different goals, completely different fitness level, experiences, needs, and then how would I do that in a group session? It's nearly impossible. So I, uh, 
I do what I can. You know, I see what I believe to be the best appropriate decision in a given instant of time. And then whenever it's possible, I can try to get isolated time with each of the athletes and try to direct them within the group session. Do I believe that you need a specific amount of time to let a skill saturate? I'm not sure about that. I'm just not sure. What do you think? It's a tricky one. Um, I think we have this dichotomistic view of separating the skills or and biomotor abilities. So from a research, at least published say research or published books, uh, what the evidence, or we can come back to that, the evidence with a quotation mark <clears throat> states that, you know, to really progress the athlete, you really need to push and saturate a certain quality. Uh, but again, I'm not so, I'm not so sure about it. So, uh, the, the mental models that produce that might not be realistic, if that makes sense. So f- from a physical standpoint, maybe maybe you do need a, like a training block that emphasizes a, a given lagging quality that, that you identify as a lagging quality. And once that kind of move, once the, mo- once the needle moves, then you kind of re, 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 you iterate through those phases and you know, maybe you, you check, observe what you see and maybe do some tests and then you decide what might be the next uh, thing to develop. Yeah, absolutely. That actually resonates with me. And again, we should we really have to define at some point what, what is the physical quality that we need. Because, for example, yeah, if I want to improve someone's maximal strength and then I have them do long steady state runs, well, that, of course, that's going to interfere. So obviously, I'll reduce the runs if I want to get. But that is in many ways a reductionist view, at least from my perspective, working with very complex skills that depend on so many qualities interacting at the same time. So if we simplify this question to, all right, we got we want to improve uh, endurance and we want to improve maximal strength. And if I work on both at the same time, then both are going to suffer. And if I want to improve my strength, then I'll probably need to reduce. Yeah, of course, I agree with that. But when I work with athletes uh, in combat sports, they depend on so many interacting qualities that for me to make such a decision that I'm going to have to do that with a lot of uncertainties involved because, well, first I got to ask myself this, well, let's say I improve that quality, whatever it may be. Does it guarantee that it will interact with the other qualities after it's improved, you know? And then what happens to the other qualities that I don't train them, right? Because we have a limited amount of time. So if I'm going to dedicate all my efforts to improving a certain quality, then what happens to the other ones? So I'm just, these are just questions that are out of the open. I don't have a clear answer for that, but the, the more complex the picture is, especially with decision-making athletes, I just find it more difficult to, con- to come with a, with a very strong and clear answer. But here's a million-dollar question if you ask me. So taking all this uncertainty into consideration, like we, we don't know what – I wouldn't say we don't know, but uh, the, the, the structure of reality, <laughs> the structure of the physical performance is really complex and a lot of interacting qualities or – and then a lot of different models that try to explain the, this complexity really using really re- reductionist approach. The, yes. the, the question is, as a coach, you know, you need, to, you need to step in front of the athletes and you need to do something. And how, yeah. do, you, how, do, you, decide, you know, how do you decide what needs to be done uh, on a day-to-day basis? And you know, how do you define your own qualities? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, 
I think we should maybe at some point talk about bottom-up approach versus top-down. Um, so yes, of course, we got to have a general tentative long-term plan. We got to have that. We got to know roughly where we're going. So in that regard, I'm, I'm, I'm not against periodization or anything of that nature. I do have a plan, but my plan, I know that there's so many uncertainties involved and what's going to happen that I also have a bottom-up approach in which in that, in addition to my long-term planning, I arrive to the gym, I talk to my athlete, I feel them, and I don't even know what that is. You know, I talk to them, I get a sense of how they're feeling and where things are going. And I do, I do believe in the evidence-based medicine approach, you know, these, the, the Venn diagram with the, with the research, clinical evidence, I'm sorry, the experience, and then the, the athlete's uh, perspective and integrating all of this into a decision-making process. I do believe in that. So whenever I make a decision, I try to see, well, what, what are the scientific evidence or the papers that are out there that can guide me, generally speaking? Only that. They can only guide me in a general sense. So I have that. And then I have my own experience. I've been coaching for many years now, so I let that kind of weigh in as well. And I always, and you know, this to me is a key aspect in my decision-making processes as a coach. I try to get the athlete uh, it's not always natural. It doesn't always happen to begin with, but try to have them at the eye-to-eye level and try to see what they think needs to be done. Because at the end of the day, you know, again, I don't really know. So I try to integrate the science, my perspective, and the athlete's preferences and perspective. And based upon that, I make a decision. Now, that decision is not always the correct one. But then I ask, what else am I going to base my decisions on? Yeah, <clears throat> one thing um, I, I need to... Uh, point when you said that you are eye to eye with the athlete uh for example I, I, we can touch on that in, in few next episodes or something um the difference in culture so for example if 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 you're working in a team settings in a team sport and you are eye to eye with the athlete and then you go like you know i don't know what's going to happen but we can try this you know what do you guys think they you know at least in serbia they're going to say like what these guys you know fucking ridiculous he doesn't know what to do with us and yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, then you are then you are screwed like, as a as a coach. You know you you're gonna lose. Uh, in in their eyes, you're not gonna be expert or or, or a leader. You're just gonna be like a, a monkey. Uh, but if you do that in a different culture, for example, Sweden, uh, the athletes gonna appreciate that. You know they're gonna appreciate you asking for their input. So I would say on on top of those three, you know, Venn circles, yeah. Venn diagram circles. Uh, you know that needs to be wrapped in a in a in a in a sport and uh, national culture. Hundred percent. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And to be fair, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And then it's also sport specific and athlete specific. But you know, we just published a paper about this, and the title of it was "Autonomy: The Missing Ingredient of a Successful Program." Maybe a bit of a of a big title to attract some readers, but what, what the research actually shows quite elegantly as well is that providing small choices, even choices that are irrelevant to the task at hand, for example, letting them choose the color of the ball, which of course, well, at least on paper, should not influence their performance in any way because it's just the color of a ball. But once you provide some athletes with decisions, even small and irrelevant one, that is perhaps a good strategy to feel out how much choice and how much involvement 
they're going to have. And then you're also protecting yourself because th this conversation that I, I have quite often tends to become a dichotomy. Is it, we, we, you either let them do whatever they want or you control every parameter of, of the session. But you know, there's also this uh, spectrum there. And I, I do think as a matter of principle that over time a coach and a teacher should strive to, to move along the, the continent towards provide involving the athletes. Now, we may not always be possible to the fullest extent, right? I mean, even with the athletes I work with, some are very responsible and mature uh, and very intelligent. So I can actually consult with them. All right, what do you think we should do? Like, truly eye to eye. And some, it's not going to work to the same extent because some of them actually, their decision is that I'll make the decision for them. So in a sense, it's their decision too. Yeah, yeah. Of course, but also I should also add that you're absolutely right. And we had this conversation in the past. I have not worked in team sports. I've not worked with very large groups of athletes, soccer. So you should take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. And your experience with that is, is more relevant than mine. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm always coming from that kind of standpoint of working with uh, team sport athletes, working with, a, I would say, larger group of 20 to 40 athletes at, at one instance. Um, and then, you know, trying to make them have any any type of decision but as you said we can maybe you know uh, we can provide multiple choices and let let them choose choose the one or um i like to say that you know coaching is kind of tricking them it's like you need to trick them sometimes um, and one one very basic example i love to give is that uh, once we gave them say 10 meter sprints and you, you tell them you know try to sprint as fast as possible from cone a to cone b they kept shutting down the speed, you know, maybe one or two meters before the cone. And then you, 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 you might argue all day with them and say like, you know, stop fucking around, sprint across that cone and try to, you know, go fast across the line. And they'll just don't give a crap. And then, you know, rather than wasting your energy and getting in conflict with the athletes, if your goal is to get a good 10 meter effort, just move the bloody cone two meters up front and then you know no argument you like you can you can make like a sh small warning or something like that but you know at the end of the day you're gonna get those 10 meters so uh it's pretty it's like a you know tricking game 100 percent, yeah yeah and you know i've actually done a fair few studies on deception uh that cost me health i gotta say because deceiving an athlete in a scientific uh study is something that's very stressful and in fact, one of my recent, most recent studies that finally is going to get published soon, I had to deceive the athletes that they punched either harder or uh, with less power uh, on different days. And to I had to come to national level boxers as they try to punch as hard and as fast as they could, uh, a punching integrator that measures their forces and velocities. I had to look them right in the eyes and tell them, listen, man, you're punching 7% less powerful than the other day. And of course, I was, I was deceiving them or saying it more directly. I was lying to them and they were shocked, right? And I wanted to see what kind of influence the, the deception will have on them. And in this particular study, I got to say that no effect was found, which was very surprise, surprising. But in some of the other studies that I've used deception, tricking them, like you said, for example, telling them that they're done while in fact they have a few more repetitions to go and things along these nature actually influence uh, 
uh, outputs to a very impressive extent. So this actually goes quite hand in hand with what you're saying. So uh, <clears throat> I would say to to wrap up this this episode uh, without going into you know too much uh, abroad and you know. Uh, diluting the whole conversation and yeah. we're going to try to stick to one or two uh, topics at, in, a, in a given episode. So to, to wrap up this one, uh, you already mentioned evidence-based medicine and evidence-based practice. And my, my current viewpoint is that uh, um, now we have, I call them evidence-based mafia, uh, the guys who are proclaiming to be they're, they're acting from a higher ground, like having the evidence, like scientific evidence in, in terms of meta studies, usually, uh, you know, studies done on, on college students and, and stuff like that. And claiming that's the evidence and everything else is just, you know, bullshit from, from practice. And I'm kind of getting, getting really fed up with that stuff. Um, uh, and, but the the thing is, like in the room full of coaches, I gonna I gonna defend sports science, and in the f in the room full of sports scientists, I gonna defend the coaches. Um, that's why I'm a complementarist, and and the website name is the complementary training. So I'm kind of always like a devil's advocate. Uh, but th this is the thing that bothers me. So what we, what we are trying to do, or what these guys are trying to do, is to kind of reduce all decision making and all all you know stuff in in practice to meta studies just you know what what's the evidence based and the funny thing is that what was what has been the evidence now and 10 years before is completely different so um i think i was reading a study today something something uh, i can't remember exactly what it was but it it changed the evidence it was the evidence evidence in opposite direction so the evidence-based mafia can just should actually remain skeptical about all this evidence and as you said you need to use it as a as a starting point and then you you know wrap it up with your own experience and the preferences of the athlete and 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 everything else which is why i think what we should discuss on our next episode is what evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine actually is the history uh what it proposes because I think the term evidence-based practice has been reduced to just one of the one of the circles, which is just the scientific evidence. But it started to neglect some other components, and it maybe does not question enough the robustness or the external validity or some other variables that we can discuss in greater detail in the next session. But I'm with you. I think this is definitely worthy of a topic on its own. Yeah. Okay, so we have a topic for the next episode, which is which is great. And for the listeners willing to learn more about the evidence-based practice, you actually recommended me a, a a book, and you you said it's one of the best books you you read on yes, science. Certainly, certainly, one of the best books I professionally that I've read is uh, is called the Philosophy of Evidence-Based Medicine. I've read this book five, six times, and it really, so I published a lot recently on uh, methodology and exercise sciences, and I borrowed or stole the idea, a lot of the ideas from this book. It's wonderful, and it's actually very, it's not that difficult and doesn't require a lot of background knowledge. So despite the, the, the title that may not be as attractive, I actually recommend it to a lot of people who want to, and I think maybe that's what we should talk about on uh, the next uh, Sure, what do you think?
I think that's a great start, and uh, I'll try to read that in a in a week or two uh, with all these books surrounding me and yeah. being on a on a reading list. So anyway, I'll, I'll put a link to a book in the in the episode notes. Uh, anyway, we're gonna we're gonna end up this uh, episode, and you know the next episode we'll cover evidence based practice. Uh, so. Thanks a lot for listening and thanks Israel uh, for your time and till next time. Yeah. Stay tuned guys. See you later.